Well, hello and welcome to episode 25 of Practically Ranching. I'm your host, Matt Perrier. This week, we are celebrating Veterans Day, and I thought that it was no better tribute than to pay a bit of homage to our U.S. servicemen and women and talk to someone who is probably the soldier that I know the best. And that's not saying much because, honestly, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know and haven't known a lot of active military folks in my life. And I guess just in my community and and the the circles that I ran, um, I didn't get to and haven't gotten to visit nearly as much with with, uh, servicemen and women as, as probably I should and I would like. But this week... I have what I would call the toughest guest that I've had on yet. And I'm not sure if that is because he is family, spoiler alert, it's my cousin Kyle, or if it's because I am largely ignorant of what it is that he has had to go through as a member of the U.S. Armed Forces, both the Navy and the Army at different points in his, in his career. Or if it's just because this is probably the first episode that it's it's gotten really real. Um, I'm pretty good at talking about science and beef industry politics and policies and, and stuff like that. And it gets tougher when you talk to someone about the stresses of war and how much difference there is between those war stories that we always used to watch on television and the movies and the actual stories of war. And when we hear Kyle talk about just simple things like communication and respect and sacrifice, discipline and structure and all these things that are words to us that we may use sometimes when we're coaching our kids or trying to improve our life. But for Kyle and, and anybody who has been deployed, um, they're a matter of life and death and in many different ways. And so uh, this one was, yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough to, to structure. It was tough for me to edit because I didn't want to cut anything out. But I think it is a very pertinent discussion, and I think it's, a, uh, it's something that we all need to hear, not just this week as we look forward to Veterans Day, but every week and every day. And and as Kyle will tell us, remember these servicemen and women who have given everything, quite often paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we can sleep peacefully and live in the land of the free. And so I want to thank Kyle once again for being on here with us. And I want to thank you for listening and uh, look forward to celebrating Veterans Day with even a little deeper meaning this year. Welcome, Kyle, to Practically Ranching. Well, thank you for having me. You bet. How are things in Florida today? Uh, it's sunny and about 85 degrees. You can't beat it. Nice. It's a very nice day. Well, good. What have you been up to today so far? Well, I had to uh, at a CPR recertification class, a BLS life support as part of my you know, my current job, I had to go do that at eight o'clock this morning, which only took about 20 minutes. And then, uh, came back to the house and we, uh, spent about three or four hours walking around the boat show, the Fort Lauderdale boat show. 
It's a lot of fun. I can't afford anything in there, but you know, it's a lot of fun to look. So, well, good. I bet that would be a pretty pretty impressive place to have a boat show. It is. It's neat. There's a lot of money in there. It's incredible yeah. amount of money. So, and that boat show is one of the biggest in the world in Fort Lauderdale. So, it's quite amazing how they put all those boats in a marina together. So they have it at the marina. Yeah, and it's actually spread out between the convention center and the marina. They add several miles of floating dock onto the the marina that's already there to bring all these other boats in and everything. And there's just hundreds of boats there. So, nice. yeah, that it's an interesting cool. sight. Good. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, and uh, I know a lot of our local Greenwood County folks will obviously uh, remember you, remember your folks, but give us your history and, and the tie from Eureka, Kansas on forward, and uh, bring us all the way full circle. Okay, yeah, kind of uh, how I got here, I guess. Yeah, and it, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, especially where I'm living now in Southern Florida, and I work with a lot of people that, that you know, have never even left south florida you know i'd say i i was born born in eureka kansas a small town in eureka they they like they can't believe it it's beyond their imagination really (laughs) but yeah so i was born in eureka my dad worked on dale banks a number of years and we uh, moved out of eureka in i think uh, it was four or five years old so just fleeting memories of living on, on the farm there so i remember my dad out running running tractors around i remember I remember the barn cats, Courtney and I would always try to chase the barn, barn kitties around and that never re- really worked out well for us. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, kids and feral cats just isn't a good mix sometimes. So, but yeah, that's, uh, to live there and, and, you know, I've, I've been all over Kansas, really. We ended up in Dodge City. I lived in Kansas City and Overland Park for a while and then ended up in Parsons where I, that's where I went to high school in Parsons. So back and forth, you know, I came out and spent a couple summers with you guys you know, for a few years. That was always fun to do. So yeah, yeah grandpa would pay, put me to work painting the house, right? So, I forgot <laughs> yeah. that. I forgot that. Yeah. <laughs> the one memory I have is you or Courtney, one of the two, we had a storm coming in or something, and um, you said, we just don't have storms like this in Kansas City. And I was like, you're you're only a hundred and some miles away. Yeah. And finally, Dad said, you just can't see them. Yes, like that's correct. Yeah, There's no sight line to see it up on the ridge. I remember that. I remember that distinctly because I believe there was a tornado form that we were watching from a distance from Grandpa's house. Yeah. So that was yeah. always a good, a good perspective. And, and we had a lot of them back then. Uh, the yeah. Eighties. It just seemed like we had one or two a summer. Um, yeah. And then we kind of got out of the pattern. And unfortunately for Eureka's sake, we've kind of gotten back into the pattern. The yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how it was hit or miss. Yeah. 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 So graduated Parsons high. And then what'd you do from there? So yeah, graduated Parsons. And that, that was the big question is like, what am I going to do? You know, I was not, I was not a stupid kid, but I was not a motivated kid. I didn't have that kind of structure and discipline that I know I needed. I could have gone to college, you know, I could have squeaked out something, but it probably would have resulted in failure. Uh, And I was at least smart enough to know that, you know, I didn't get terrible grades, but I didn't get great grades in high school. And I had a friend that had joined the military, a guy who was a grade ahead of me. And he talked well about it. So, you know what, I, I, this is what I got to do. I got to go try this, I think. So I signed the paperwork when I was 17 years old before I even graduated high school. So, and then 
for some reason, I delayed my enlistment till the end of the summer. You know, looking back on it, I probably should have just left right after, right after I graduated. But you know, that's hindsight, and that's how that's how I ended up in the Navy for the first thing off of that. So, where'd you go first? Well, I, I tell you a story. This friend of mine, he was in he was a, a jet engine mechanic, right? And and he was already getting job offers. He'd been in you know a year, and he's already getting job offers from from Boeing and, you know, some of these airlines and everything. So I'm like, well, you know, that might be a way to go. So I went up there and I took the ASVAB and thankfully I scored very well on that, that test. And for those of you not familiar, the ASVAB is the entrance exam. It's an aptitude test for the military. And this, (laughs) the recruiter, uh, she handed out a sheet to me. She said, Hey, this is, I have a better job for you than being an engine mechanic. And thankfully, it was a much better job. I mean, it it uh, it got me fly- it got me introduced to flying. Essentially, I was going to be a crew member of a helicopter, and there were some, I guess, caveats with that. I had to. Uh, uh, I went to air crew school and and Pensacola. Well, anyway, let me go backwards here. So, basic training was in Orlando, yes, Florida. So, yeah, I started out in Orlando, Florida. Uh, circle. Yeah, full circle. <laughs> uh, but you you know, talk about weather in Florida. You know, because Orlando is right in the middle uh, of the peninsula, and yeah. so it's the lightning capital of the world. They get hmm. more lightning strikes than anybody else, and at least they did at that time. So we we're constantly having to, you know, stay indoors or stuck indoors because there was a lightning storm. And then I ended up in Pensacola, Florida. Pensacola, Florida is where I did my initial kind of crew member flight training, and that was a lot of fun. It was. You know, it's like an amusement ride, a little challenges, you know, they, they, you know, put you in a parachute harness and drag you through the water and you got to get out of the harness. Uh, you had to do a bunch of swimming. Uh, there was a little short survival course and everything like that. So that was a, a wonderful school and I had a great time there. After that school was kind of wrapping up, they, uh, you know, like, well, you're going down to rescue swimmer school. And I'm like, well, I, I didn't sign up for that. I, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. And I remember the guy, he broke out the paperwork and he showed me and he goes, he goes, no, no, this is your volunteer statement for rescue swimmer school. Cause it was a volunteer only <laughs> school. And I go, I never signed that. And he goes, he goes, this is your signature. So I think back and that recruiter, you know, when she sat down and she says, I got a great job for you. And part of that <laughs> thing, she was handing me paperwork to sign. She goes, she goes, sign this. This is just because you have to be a, you have to be able to swim. So this is just a statement saying you, you can swim. <laughs> and that, that was my volunteer for rescue swimmer school. And, you know, and then that was about two and a half months of hell after that, before I, I graduated that school. So at that time, the Coast Guard guys were going to our school. So it's the same Coast Guard wow. rescue swimmers you see going out of the aircraft today and everything else. You know, looking back on it, I'm, I'm glad I did it. I just didn't realize I was doing it. So... Yes, for all of those listening that, you know, you're thinking about the military or you uh, have children or kids that want to go in the military, I caution you, you know, a lot of those recruiters can be used car salesmen and <laughs> you never know what read. you're going to get. So Don't just sign, read. Yes, read. Don't be 17-year-old Kyle. <laughs> so you need to read read what you sign first. But it, it, it was amazing. I, I'm very lucky that I ended up with that job because it was for an, an enlisted person in the Navy, it was it was an excellent job. It was, uh, 
you know, is, they still had a lot of mental challenges, had a lot of physical challenges and, and everything else. So after Pensacola, I spent, I spent a while in Millington, Tennessee, went to school up there. And that was for some reason, you know, I, after growing up in Kansas, I was more cold in, in Tennessee than I'd ever been in Kansas. Cause it was just, oh, yeah. it's always yeah. wet. It's always wet and right at freezing. So I don't, I, it's just, yeah, Chilly it seemed like it was moon. miserable. Yeah. Yep. After that, I ended up in San Diego, and that's where I was stationed for a, a little over six years. Is stationed out in San Diego, so and I had a I had a great time out there. It's a wonderful city. It's expensive to live out there now, but uh, you know it was a wonderful city, and we had a great time out there. What my job was, I was a I was a uh, sensor operator. So the aircraft I flew in was a uh, they don't even have any. They're all in museums now. It's an H two SH two F, and then I went to a G model. And it was primarily an anti-submarine uh, platform, but it, we did some other things with it. So it had a radar on it, so we do a lot of we did a lot of counter-drug missions. Is what the majority of things we did, and a lot of training for the rescue swimmers. Where I never had any actual rescues, so that's good. But, you know, good and bad, I guess. Good that nobody went in the water and needed saving, and and bad that you know I never got opportunity to use those skills. But it's still it's part of the job. So, and that was a, that was a lot of fun. I, I really, and I learned a lot in that six years and the military is, that's what kind of started forming that structure and discipline that I needed. And then, yeah, eventually I start working on my, my college degree in the middle of all this too, because I knew I had to get it eventually. So, and it's not fun. God, I wish I had, I had just done four years of that and, and been done with it, but I was on the little longer program. What were you doing when you were on the H2? So they had different sensors on there. There was anti-submarine. It was primary anti-submarine platform and a, and a surveillance platform. So it had, uh, we dropped sonar buoys that would listen into the water. The aircraft had a, a, essentially a processor, a computer on board that I would use to interpret that. Part of my training in Tennessee was they would lock us in these cinder block rooms with no windows and this secret information so i can still tell you you know you know what the what the hertz of a a main coolant pump is a, of a of a typhoon submarine a soviet typhoon sub, submarine is to this day because that was just drilled into my head after all these years and for some reason that stuff will never never fall out i don't know why i've forgotten all kinds of other stuff but that that <laughs> stuff is stuck in there yeah but you know it Unfortunately, back to that, all that secret information on Soviet submarines, you know, and Eastern Bloc submarines that they gave us, it was center block room. It was, you know, they'd have buzzers on there, so there couldn't be any recording devices in there. So they would lock you in that room, turn the buzzers on. And so it's just this constant buzzing while you're trying to learn all this stuff and they're teaching and all wow. these things and everything. But then I, you know. Several months later, I'm at a bookstore. This is back when bookstores still existed. And there's a Jane's Sains Manual. I don't know if you're familiar with Jane's. Jane's is a is a as a publisher that uh, produces like military. It's big kind of picture books and information, and it details all these military equipment and everything. So I opened that up because there was a Jane's on submarines, and almost all of that secret information that I was learning in there. <laughs> Right yeah, yeah, it's right there, James, sitting on the bookshelf at what Barnes and Noble or at the time or anything. So, um, yeah, again, that job was 
know, we did some of that, but I, we did so many things because uh, it, it was an, it was a helicopter and I was in a reserve unit, but I was full time. So I had a variety of different pilots in there. A lot of training flights where I'm just sitting in the back while the pilots do their training. Um, a lot of the rescue swimmer stuff, because we uh, every six months you'd have to go out and do qualifications. You have to jump into the bay, you know, jump out of the aircraft into the water, getting into your hoist iterations. I'd have to do hoist iterations where I'm doing the hoisting and not on the hoist. So those were always a lot of fun. It's a lot of work. It's 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 more backbroking work than you would you would think, but it was always good but to you, do. But you didn't have the stick at that time. You were no, either I was not a pilot. Rear. I was not a pilot at the time, and. You know, I never even really thought about it that much, but I knew there was a guy that I had worked with. I knew transferred over to the army into the warrant officer program to flight school. And I had kind of, kind of, I've heard just little bits and pieces about him, but not a whole lot. And it's kind of a combination of events of what led me into going to flight school. Uh, it was at, at the point I was ready to get out of the Navy uh, my paperwork was signed and I was getting ready to, to get out and go to school full time. Melinda, my wife, she had a good job and we were all ready to go. And then, uh, after several doctors told her she wouldn't be able to get pregnant, she got pregnant. So, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> so yeah, it's, uh, uh, and that's, it's great news, but it's a little scary too when you're, you know, 25 years old and, and now I got a, I got a kid on the way I need to provide for. So I need to kind of get after this a little bit better. So I'm, I'm sitting there thinking like, well, what am I going to do? And I'm flying one night and the, I had two pilots and we're out doing these uh, deck landings on a, on a ship at night. And this is before anybody used night vision goggles in the Navy. Now they're commonplace. Army was using night vision goggles for a long time, but the Navy really wasn't big into it. So these, it's pitch black out here other than some lights. And these guys are landing on a small ship. And it's a calm night, but you know, I, I, I was scared to death and I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm like, okay, you know what? If these two idiots can do this, <laughs> then there's a chance for me. There's gotta be, there's, there's gotta be hope for me. So uh, that was kind of my motivation. And then I started putting my flight school packet together literally the next day. And then uh, like a day before Jake was born is when I got accepted to flight school. Uh, is when that that board met, and then I finally got the acceptance letter. So, and after that, I was off to the army. So I think I know, but why the switch from Navy to Army in order to get into flight school? So at the time, at the time, I did not have a degree to get into flight school in the Navy or Air Force. It's a fairly complicated process, and there's always there's never even any guarantee that you'll you'll get sure. to flight school, right? You could have all the qualification, make it through the officer candidate training and all that stuff. And then they come back and they say, oh, well, we don't have any slots right now. So you're going to go, Sorry. you're going to go be on a ship somewhere for a while. <laughs> so that's part of it. And, and at the time to be a warrant officer in the army, you did not have to have a college degree. I would eventually have to finish that degree in order to get promoted. But initially you didn't have to have it. So, that's what kind of led me into the, to that realm, I guess. And, you know, it was, to me, flying in the Army was more appealing than in the Navy, to be honest with you, especially what I was doing, I mean, for the helicopter stuff. So it was a good opportunity for me, you know. I switched from enlisted to officer, and, and 
it was, uh, you know, looking back on it and thank God I did it. So, you uh, you know, and, and, and thankfully I got, I got picked up on my first try because there was another guy at the squadron that went through and put all his packet together the same time as me. And it took him three years to get accepted. So I, I lucked out on that first, that first go around, uh, thankfully, which interestingly enough, that guy, I ran into him three years later when I was back at, back at Fort Rucker in Alabama when I was teaching. And that was the transition where I took, you know, my wife and, and, and newborn from, you know, Melinda, you know, this story, Melinda is born and raised in California. Uh, we met in San Diego and then I move her to lower Alabama. So, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it was, yeah, it was quite the shock for her. I remember that we were, we were in the grocery store and, she, and it was Sunday and she had a bottle of wine and, uh, you know, the lady wouldn't sell it to her. Right. And, uh, uh, <laughs> and was like, it just, she'd never seen anything like that in her life. She just didn't understand it. Uh, so, uh, why, why can you not sell this to me on a Sunday? It just doesn't make any yeah. sense. So she's never even seen anything like that. I want a side note with Melinda, you know, my California wife and bringing her to Kansas for the first time. Right. So we get off, I can't remember where we were. I think we were, cause we were going to Parsons and I, we get off the interstate and we get into Joplin and then we're on a two lane road heading into Parsons. And, uh, you know, we're only 30 minutes out of Parsons and, uh, this car comes by, he waves at me. I wave at him. And she's like, who's that? <laughs> I go, I don't know. <laughs> and the next car comes by. I wave at that guy. He waves back, you know. And after the third time, it was just all too much. She goes, and she's like, why are you waving at these people? I don't understand what's going on. I'm like, I go, honey, this is called being friendly. You know, it, it doesn't happen in California, but it, it does happen in this neck of the woods. So, uh, you know, you just got to get, get used to it. It's okay. Nobody means you any harm. It's They're being nice. So don't worry about it. But. First of many culture shocks. Oh, yeah. Melinda. Yeah. For, yeah. But she, she adapted well. And actually, we lived in Alabama. We lived there uh, when I went to flight school and then went to Germany and then back to Alabama where we were there for another little over four years. So and we had a great time. We really did. You know, it's, it's where you live is what you make of it, you know, and whether you think it's the best place or the worst place, but it's, it's what you make of the whole situation. And we had a great time. We really did. We had good neighbors. We had a lot of fun with them and they're still good friends with us to this day. So anyway, where were we? Flight school. Moved to Alabama. Flight yeah, school. Yeah, flight school, and that was challenging. It, it really was. I uh, those days, it is, you know, you'd get up at at, you know, probably four in the morning. Uh, you'd be on the flight line by four forty, or you'd be meet the bus about four forty five, and at five thirty, you had to be in the classroom and seated. Then you had, you know, some table talk with your instructor. You would sit with him for an hour, hour and a half, then you'd go fly. It was two students for every instructor. So, you know, we'd both go fly out to these little stage fields, little small little runways. Uh, They're out in the middle of the uh, Alabama countryside, you know, and the first period student would fly and the next period student would go wait like by the tower there uh, for his chance. And then you get back, that's all done by about noon. And then you're in class from, you know, pretty much, the rest of the afternoon till about five in the evening. And then you, uh, you got probably three or four hours of studying that evening, uh, before it all starts the next day. 
So it is, it is, it's not, Really is it's school. challenging. Yeah, it is. It is school. They, they don't shove call it, flight school for nothing. Yeah, huh? they they shove it down your throat. That's that's for sure. But uh, it was it was good. I mean, I wouldn't trade that time. I mean, looking back on it, it was a pain in the ass while you're there. But you know, looking back on it, it's still it's still a good time. How long was flight school? Uh, it's about a year, all telling. And that flight school, you go through, you know, your primary, your instruments. And then you're essentially the, your tactics, and then you go into your advanced aircraft. And it's a, it's a different program now than it was when I went through. They put the guys in the advanced aircraft much earlier than than I went in there. That's how you know I ended up. I ended up flying Apaches, so it was, you know, you put a wish list in, and that wish list, you know, I don't know what they do with that, but uh, it. Uh, <laughs> It pretty much goes out. It pretty much goes out the the window. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, they held on to that one for sure. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) they did. They weren't let that one go. (laughs) So, anyway, yeah. So, and you know, and I, I, I really didn't care what, what I flew, but I, I think that suited my personality a little bit better. And they do some, they do some aptitude testing. It's not as much as other branches of the military do but they try to fit your personalities uh in with the type of aircraft and it's shown over the years that people will tend to do better their personality fits so you know the type a personalities are going to be more more apaches and that uh, the other time the 58 the scout missions not you didn't have type a personalities in the other aircraft but they're just a little different right so and there were some also some other things that they they tested with that all also, but yeah, I ended up with that and went through the Apache qualification course and got orders to Germany. I'll never forget that because we were living in base housing, and you know, we knew it was coming. We knew orders were coming, and I was one of the last ones in the class to get orders. And I don't know why that happened that way, but it it, it happened. Um, I definitely wasn't the last in the in the standings. I was almost at the top, but it for some reason they they delayed mine i don't know which just increased the suspense on it right because it's I'm sure <laughs> yeah it's a great deal of stress and I've, so i've seen top gun i know how this works so i they tell me like well you're going to germany and i'm like oh crap how do i tell my wife this you know <laughs> i mean oh, oh how do uh, how do i explain this and i was i got back to the house i was so nervous that I went and talked to the neighbor first just to kind of relax and, you know, cause he was out like doing something in his yard. So I, I chatted with him for a minute and, and Melinda test was, your script. Yeah. And Melinda's staring at me out the window cause she knew it was coming. Right. And so <laughs> she's like, she, she's still mad. She still remembers that, that I, I, I was out there chatting with the neighbor when I knew we had order somewhere. Uh, so, and that was a bit of a shock, you know, it, it really was. We'd never been, you know, now you're going to go live in another country, right? Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a big step. But again, <laughs> we spent three years in Germany and had a wonderful time. It really did. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful country. And you know, as far as agriculture goes, and we were down in kind of an agriculture region, so the variety of different crops. Uh, but uh, uh, all natural fertilizer in the springtime. So you would, uh, just when it gets warm enough to you open your windows, cause there's no air conditioning in any of the houses or anything, just when it gets warm enough to, uh, open the windows, that's when they, uh, they get the old manure spreader out. And, uh, yeah, uh, it's, 
an interesting smell inside the house after that. So, but I should remember what ba- where was the base in Germany? It was in Kaderbach, Germany. It was near Nuremberg. It's just uh, just southeast of Nuremberg, which is kind of towards this southern end of the country. We weren't down towards Munich area, but Munich was about a two hour drive uh, south of that for us. So. It's unbelievable how clean that country is. It is, and you get in some of the bigger cities like Berlin and Frankfurt, they get kind of messy here and there, but there is, the German people take an unbelievable amount of pride in their small towns and they're incredibly clean. I mean, you just don't trash, you just don't see trash anywhere. So you were in Germany, what years, Kyle? So 97 to 2000. We were back in the States for about right, right around the beginning of 2001 is when I started doing my training. Uh, there. So while in Germany, I did, I did do my first deployment with the army. I spent a total of about seven months kind of off and on down in Kosovo. And it was kind of a, uh, it wasn't a UN mission anymore, but it was still kind of a, a, a peacekeeping mission at, at that point. And that was really interesting being, especially me as a relatively new pilot. I was a brand new PIC. It was, a, you know, so there's an Apache has two two pilots there's a the the PIC and the and the and the co-pilot gunner I was in charge of that and then eventually charged because we Apaches don't fly uh you don't fly by yourself you know you fly with another aircraft you always have a wingman there's always a wingman there so and it was interesting to see another country and you know and I've been traveled a little bit but never to that extent so uh Albania uh Macedonia, uh, Kosovo, you know, and then we self-deployed all the way down there. So I flew from Germany all the way down through France, Italy to Brindisi, which is right at the heel of the boot of Italy. And then across the Adriatic sea, uh, into Albania and then, uh, um, yeah, from there. So it was, uh, it was good. That was the, the first real, the deployment, uh, it wasn't necessarily a dangerous deployment. Uh, nobody was really shooting at us, but it was more of us trying to keep people from shooting at each other. So, which quite honestly, sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. So, which is, how, that's usually how that goes. So as we've seen all too often in the last decade. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, uh, from Germany, uh, yeah, back to the States, I got an instructor job back at Fort Rucker and I kind of got stuck there because of, you know, that's when 2003 hit. The deployment cycles began in Iraq and Afghanistan and uh, essentially got stuck there until they moved us to Texas, which is Fort Hood. Uh, uh, So, yeah, and we ended up in Fort Hood for, geez, over 13 years, I think, almost 14 years there. So you would have been at Fort Rucker on 9-11? I was. I remember it very distinctly, you know, like most of us, we always remember where we, we heard that news, you know, and just, you know, our parents always remember kind of where they were when, when Kennedy was assassinated, you know, it's the same type of thing. And I was at the gym and uh, I remember looking at, because the TVs were on there, I was at the gym on base and I'm looking at the TVs and this is, you know, like, like most of us, it's just, you couldn't believe it. And I left that gym and I had a, uh, I had a, a simulator period like an hour after that. And I ran up to the office real quick and sent off an email to my career manager. Like, you know, if, if, if you need me somewhere else, 
then then please let me know you know and a lot of us did that at that point sure. so that wasn't that wasn't uncommon for us to do for a lot of guys to do so yeah it's always we always remember that you know yeah so we all know those events started a string of other events that yep. that kind of led me into the you know the high and low points of my military career is the is the the combat deployments you know and so i go to hood and i mean almost within a week of me showing up there you know we have a deployment date for this unit that i just signed into that's about six months later and almost geez I, a little over a week after I sign in, we have an we have an aircraft accident and and a pilot killed. And it's a pilot that's in my company that you know I was I was the senior instructor for this company. Uh, so and I hadn't even really signed into the unit yet. I was still kind of in processing. So it was a bit of a shock, you know, right off the bat to experience that. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't you know it wasn't the first time that's going to happen. And, and it and I had. I had lost a coworker before in an accident some years prior, but this is the first, at this point I've been flying for, you know, geez, 10 or 12 years, I think. And I'd never really experienced, you know, an accident where we've lost a pilot. So that was, that was kind of a, it was a big shock and a little, frankly, a little late in career. If you, if you do what I did for long enough, you know, it's, it, it kind of becomes, it's not commonplace, but it, it, it does happen because it's it's not the safest industry in the world for sure. So, but yeah, that it was a big shock on there, and then the deployment after that, and you know, Melinda and I we 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 learned after the first deployment we're we are a uh, there is no long sad goodbyes or anything. It's we call it the clean break and see you later. Uh, so I would <laughs> it, we're like you know, a hug and a high five and, and then I'm out the door and then they, they come up the, come up the post and, and pick up my car later. Instead of these, you know, you'll see these long tearful goodbyes with families and everything. And it's, and it's, to me, it's torture to us. It's, it's, it's torture. So, uh, we made the, the best of what we could with that. Uh, uh, and you know, and, and the kids, kids learn from the deployments too, right? You know, they're, uh, you know, both of them hated the military, yet both of them ended up in the military. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, there's all kinds of things that can happen to you. Right. So, but yeah, that's, uh, uh, it's kind of leads into the deployment years and, and my kind of final years in the, in the military. And, and, you know, and it's, we can talk about that conflict. I never went to Afghanistan. I was only in Iraq. Uh, I was stationed in Baghdad. Uh, the whole time, which is a, a good story on that. My first deployment, uh, Casey Clyde is a, is a, is a very good friend of mine. We went to flight school kind of at the same time. They lived next to us in Germany. Uh, he was, if, if I was home, then he was deployed. But if I was deployed, then he would be home. We were kind of on an opposite cycle, I guess a little bit. And Casey would always ruin stuff for me. So Melinda, you know, I tell her, because I was stationed at a, an airfield to the north of Baghdad, but again, Baghdad was my territory uh, that I flew every night. Um, and so I tell Melinda, I'm like, oh, no. She goes, you're not in Baghdad, are you? I'm like, no, I'm I'm north of Baghdad somewhere. Don't, no, I'm way north of Baghdad. Don't worry about it. It's no big deal. And then like nine months into the first deployment, you know, it was a 12-month deployment. And Casey and Vanessa are over in 
Casey just, he's like, no, no, he's not. He's right in Baghdad. He's in Baghdad every day. <laughs> <laughs> so, Thanks, whole thing, yeah. So we had several of those, you know, where I tried to protect her from certain things, but, it, you know, Casey was usually the one that, that blew it up for me, uh, so to say, but yeah. Well, Melinda's, Melinda's always so understanding of, of <laughs> little white lies where uh, she's kept in the dark. Yeah, very much I'm, so. I'm sure, like like any wife. Well. Yeah, 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 like any exactly. wife, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, no, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that went over well. So anyway, that was, uh, yeah, so I spent a year and uh, an employment, and that was, without a doubt, the, the toughest year of my life. So it's, I can't even describe it it's, it's you know and some of the things i saw you, you know it just it it's unbelievable really and you know if i if i said some of this stuff in detail you, you, you'd almost not you couldn't believe it was real so anyway yeah so thankfully i i made it through that one and i were actually at dinner last night talking about it and there was there was a point in there where i did not think I was going to make it through it. So we had four pilots killed in the first three weeks of my one-year deployment. So with the amount of pilots that we had, that was, that was you know, we had 10% casualties in the first three weeks. So when you look at those numbers, you're in your face with that, and you're like, well, this ain't going to work out great for me. So yeah, you start doing the math. Yeah, I started doing the math. But, you know, and this is where, you know, you learn there's, there's, uh, you know, you got a job to do and you just got to go do it, you know, right or wrong, whether people believed in that conflict or not, it's, I, I signed up for it. I raised my right hand and I'm going to go do what I told them I was going to do. And I got to do that every day because there's people depending on me to do that job. So, and there's guys that, that couldn't do that. As soon as the bullets started flying, we had a lot of guys that, that all of a sudden they had, you know, back and neck pain or some other ailment where they, they couldn't fly anymore. And that's, you know, it's okay. You know, I, it, you know, but if, if you don't want to do the job, then, then, you know, you don't want to do the job. But, uh, we had, we had probably that first year, probably six or seven guys like that, in my squadron that at one point or the other bowed out for some reason. Uh, and never flew again. And it was, it was a lot of work to try to get rid of those guys and bring other people in. It's uh, that deployment cycle is something, you know, and, you know, you and your listeners are, are not unfamiliar with hard work and long days. And it is, I wouldn't say it's a whole lot different from some of that. You still work in a dangerous environment. Uh, this was just a little more dangerous. Uh, but a little. Yeah, a little. <laughs> I would but, say a lot. You know, I'd gone through all these classes on, on, you know, fatigue, acute and chronic fatigue. Uh, you know, when they teach you aeromedical subjects, that's always a big one on how to recognize those. And uh, there's a picture I, I, one of the crew chiefs took before I went out on a night mission. And it was, I sent it to Melinda. He sent it to me and I sent it to Melinda. And she's like, oh my God, thank God you got home because you look exhausted. And you know, I look back at that picture and I still have it. I was, that was before I took off on a five or six hour flight at night. And, you know, that was that chronic fatigue in my face. Uh, I came home, you, they give you a, like a mid month or a mid deployment break. You come home for about 10 days. Uh, and I came back and 
I crawled in bed and I, I slept for 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about freaking out. Melinda was freaking out. So thankfully, Casey was there for me this time, right? She called Casey. She's like, what do I do? And Casey's like, just, just let, let him, him sleep. sleep. <laughs> let him sleep. You know, and at some point in that 24 hours, you know, obviously I got up and I used the restroom. She had made me a sandwich, put it by the bed. I ate part of that. I drank some water and everything, but really I, I don't even, I mean, I was out for 24 hours solid. So finish that first deployment, come back home. And that's, you know, it's, it's the next deployment is already, we already had the date for the next deployment. So that's when the work starts again. Oh, and it's, <clears throat> it's constant, constant effort. It was almost worse between deployments because I'm now I'm working, you know, 12, 13, 14 hour days and trying to get the unit ready to deploy again. And, you know, but I'm at home. So it seems like I'm spending less time at home than, you know. So how much time between your deployments? I had about, I had about 14 months, I think 14 or 15 months. They have a minimum, a dwell time of, they, they can't redeploy you again for that long within a year. So they have to be stateside for at least 12 months before they'll redeploy you. So the one deployments within a year as well. Correct. Yeah. My second deployment was scheduled for 15 months. And it was luckily cut down to, it ended up being right around 13 months. So a long time. But I tell you one thing that did the good thing out of this is, is, and this is our modern era that we live in, this communication. For the most part, I had decent internet access. Uh, so I would, I would be able to talk with the kids. I'd get emails. I remember I got home from a flight and I had gotten an email from Jake's teacher that he did something in class. I don't remember what it was. And I looked at my watch and I'm like, oh, guess what? That guy's getting off the bus here in about 15 minutes. So, so that poor kid walked in the house. He walked in the house. The phone rang. It's me from the other side of the planet, you know, <laughs> asking him how his day was and why he got in trouble. So, uh, you know, it, it is and it's really the important things that it from Lynn and I, it taught us how to communicate a lot better, very much so, because you have no choice. It's either, you know, it's pass or fail at that point for marriages. And, and unfortunately, military marriages suffer a lot, and it's mainly due to that communication. So we've gotten a lot better at that over the years, and, and mainly because of those deployments, just, you know, they force us into that stuff. So, yeah, so one funny story. So I'm sitting there talking to Melinda one day, and I had internet, and I we had video but there wasn't enough to get voice. wasn't enough bandwidth for voice over there. So we were typing messages. So we had we could both see each other with a little bit of a lag, and and she's typing messages. A couple of months prior, the neighbors she's like, "Oh, the neighbor's cat had kittens." I'm like, "We don't want any." She's like, "No, we don't want any kittens either. We don't want any cats." And there's a long story with these cats. I'll tell you later, Todd. But anyway, so I'm like, "We don't want any cats." And so we're two months later. We're sitting there chatting. She's in her room, set up. And there's this little, I'm looking at the picture and there's this little gray ball on the, on the bed and we're sitting there typing away and, and I go, where did you put the litter box? And she looked at that message. <laughs> you could see her. She looked down on it, turned around and shoved the cat off the bed. So <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, okay, first off, it's not the cat's fault that you got busted doing this, you know, you know. <laughs> obviously 
Casey, Casey didn't blow that one. You know, uh, no, I know. Casey didn't spill the beans on that one. He probably would have. Yeah, that's one of those things. And that's that's where the communication comes in. And you know, there's always little things like that. I came home from one deployment or the mid tour, I think, on my second deployment, and we didn't tell the kids. They knew I was coming home. We had like a two week window when I was coming home, but they didn't know when. So Melinda knew. So she came and got me uh, at the airport, and I was back at the house when the kids got home from school. Joey, the youngest, Joey gets off the bus and I just sitting there in the chair casually in the living room. Joey walks in the door. I go, Hey Joe. He goes, Hey dad. And he walks into his room. It doesn't, it takes him about, about 10 or 15 seconds before it registers in his brain. And then of course he comes running back in there. So uh, yeah, there's always little things as a military family. You learn, you learn how to make the most of what you have, right? At, at the time. And, you know, before that second deployment, it was right before Christmas. So we, no, actually, maybe it was the first deployment. I can't remember which one. We, and it was right after Thanksgiving. So the kids went to bed and we just, it was Christmas the next morning when they woke up. The, the tree was up, house was decorated, presents were out, you know, because we were going to miss a Christmas. So I, Anyway, that's it. So after the uh, the second deployment, and I, you know, I'd had enough at that point. The army wasn't playing nice with me on on career management. I'd gotten a promotion, but I had ended up turning down that promotion in order to retire because it was just they wanted to move us to El Paso, and uh, it just it's just going to didn't want to work out. So and Melinda had a good job; we weren't solely dependent on my income. So the decision was made that, in both of us, that you know. And Melinda and I made an agreement a long time ago that, you know, I play army for 20 years. Uh, and then after that, it's, it's, it's your career. Right. So, you know, and how that's worked out is, is, you know, I've moved her to lower Alabama and Germany and back to lower Alabama. And then she moves me to Fort Lauderdale. So it's working out. It's working out well for me. You earlier said, I don't, feel like I was a stupid kid in high school. I think you're proving to anyone listening, you are definitely <laughs> not a stupid kid. <laughs> oh, God. We've all had our moments, though, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I, so I ended a military career. I was a, I was kind of at the pinnacle, and it, it's sad that the Army didn't do more to keep me because, and they did, they made some effort, but not, I wanted more out of it because there wasn't a whole lot of me at the time. I was a senior instructor. Uh, I had been at the, I'd run a, a company in a battalion office at the time. So I had a lot of good experience and they, you know, they didn't want to play and, and we were done playing also. So the time was to get out. And, and thankfully I rolled into a contracting job, which I essentially did the same thing, except I wasn't deploying. And I did that for about another seven years. So I flew Apaches as a civilian, uh, for another seven years after that, which is it's amazing, really, when I look back on it. What year was it you retired, Kyle? Well, you you remember you were at the retirement yeah, party. Say, yeah, remember, so it I was being thirty one right thirty one December of two thousand nine at the yeah. uh, I can't remember what's the Hyatt in uh, Austin. We had that we had a retirement party. We I mean, we, it, we blew a whole bunch of money on it, but it was a great time. So and, and everything that you have said leading up to that, I didn't know at the time. Yeah. All I did know was that here were, to me, officers in the Army that had worked side by side with you, some of 
whom had been deployed with you, some of whom had taught with you, some of whom had led you or been led by you. Yeah. And every single one in their army dress either said it publicly or standing at the bar talking about what you had meant to them and what you had done in your career. I'd never been anywhere that somebody was lauded that much and was held up in that high regard. And, you know, I understand part of it is is respect and duty and, and training and everything else. Part of it is the bond that you all had formed by what you had had to do and see. But, yeah, it was clear, and that's the tough thing about whether it be the military or anything yeah. else in government. Sometimes we don't make sure that we do whatever we have to do to keep the right people on and maybe the, let yeah. the wrong people off. So I'll, I'll tell you, Matt, there's two reasons those guys stood out highly of me. One, because uh, there was an open bar there that night. <laughs> <laughs> and, and two, it was my retirement party, so they were being nice. So, uh, well, yeah. I've been to retirement parties before where people, you know, begrudgingly give the toast and, you know, talk about, ah, oh, this guy put in a lot of hours. He was a great yeah. guy. And, yeah, sad to see you go. And here's your watch. This, this was yeah. different, Kyle. It was so, different. and that's the, you know, and going past the military, I, I've, and even to this day, I have to surround myself with those type of people. You know, it's, it's, I worked when I first moved out here, I worked for a, uh, you know, an airplane charter company, which I still do part time, but I was working for them full time. But there wasn't a single person in that building that ever had any military experience or anything like that. So my sense of humor, uh, uh, be it dark sometimes, didn't, didn't go over well at, at point uh, at that's some points thing, right? it, it is and and that's why I ended up you know currently I'm working for a fire department you know flying you know medical and doing some search and rescue stuff and that fire department is you know it's really it's kind of that similar military structure right so uh, and there's a lot of guys I work with that were in the military also uh, so the one big thing I've learned out it from my own you know kind of psyche i guess is after i got out is i need to keep that kind of military mindset people around me and you know i'm just i'm just happier and healthier that way i think so and part of this you know what i'm doing here too is you know i have to have a mission still you know flying people that sounds fun right flying people to the bahamas sounds like a great time but you know there's still you know i still got I'm like come on lady you got to put your shoes on before we go through customs here so you know <laughs> and that that gets old after a while right uh, i want to I stop you before you get too far and and you kind of glossed over your two current retirement gigs so tell people what you really do on those two different jobs well i'll go back a little bit i worked after i retired seven years i was flying apaches the majority of the time almost an entire time i worked for the dutch air force uh, so I actually have a Dutch pilot's license that I, I keep in my wallet still and I break out every once in a while uh, <laughs> when I find somebody that's uh, Dutch origin. So I did that and I, I had a wonderful time doing that. I, I still keep in touch with those guys, but it was it was contracting as military contracting, which is a very shady business, uh, uh, to be quite honest. Uh, there's a lot of you know profiteering and, and not a lot of care for what's in there. And I, I got after the 
you know, the second little furlough that I got out of there when the contract was lost and these companies were fighting over me and I just, I'd had enough of it. So I went down to Houston and got a job flying medevac. And that was my first job flying like civilian medical transfers in a helicopter. And I loved it, but it was just, Melinda and I weren't going to be happy living in Houston. I don't think at that point. So I commuted down there and I did that for a year, but it gave me valuable experience and, and allowed me to get this job that I have out here. So currently, like I said, I, I came out here in 2018, got a job flying airplanes to the Bahamas, small little fixed wing airplanes. Cause I, I have no desire. I could, I qualify for the airlines to go in and, you know, but it's, it's a hard life. You're still gone a lot. This job I have now I'm, I'm home every night. So, uh, I don't want to be gone for three or four days at a time anymore. I think I'm past that in my, my career or my life. So you- you went from being deployed shooting bad guys in Baghdad to training Dutch pilots on Apaches still to then flying fixed wing, which is a plane, Yeah. with retired or vacationing people from, what, Fort Lauderdale to the Bahamas? Oh, all over the place. Yeah. We get them from everywhere. So. And, and which is the job that you hated the most? Uh, I don't, I never really hated any of them. Okay. It's, it's, right. it's, it's, a uh, it's, I, I think it was just the, the fixed wing job when I was doing that full time, I just wasn't happy because I didn't have that mission and I didn't have that, that kind of camaraderie that I needed, you know, what I was getting at. Yeah. I remember some of the comments you made about that. It was just, yeah. you could tell that it just wasn't enough of a challenge. I mean, yeah. to me, what better gig does it get than to live in Fort Lauderdale and I know, right? Yeah. Fly, fly people back and forth. <laughs> yeah, and I know. You but were like, oh, this is, this is awful. Leave yeah. it to Kyle. I wasn't happy. So, uh, <laughs> but, you but know. I get I, it. I mean, I think yeah. anybody listening to this is doing what they're doing, not because it's easy, but because it's rewarding. And there's a certain amount, as you said, there's a certain amount of respect and satisfaction in doing something meaningful correct uh, which yeah. brings us to your other job or your full-time retirement yep. gig right now tell us what you're doing there because so, when when we hear i work for a fire department in fort lauderdale yeah I guarantee they don't have in mind what i got to see last january <laughs> yeah. which is where you work so yeah i currently work for the the broward sheriff's office uh department of fire rescue so the, the county fire department belongs to the sheriff's office, which makes it even more confusing. And what I do for them is, is you know, I fly a helicopter for them. Uh, it's me and two uh, firefighter paramedics that are in there. And then the department trained me as an EMT. That's why I had to go do my, go do my uh, CPR, CPR recertification training, yeah. today. And we do generally medical transfers. I did, I just came off a week of days. We did uh, some hospital transfers. I did one transfer, one scene call with a guy with a gunshot wound, another one with, well, the guy had an, had an aneurysm. So we, we moved him to a higher level hospital and stuff like that. And we, we go and do searches offshore periodically. There's, there's the Everglades and you experience when you're out here, right? You went out on the airboat. Well, a lot of those people go out on airboats or small little John boats uh, that, that you can rent out there. And you get in that maze of canals out in the Everglades and they get lost. So uh, we'll go out and find them uh, and uh, a little offshore stuff. Every once in a while, there's we get calls for uh, boats that have overturned. We go out and find where they are. We don't have a hoist. Um, that's a capability we're looking to get here shortly. 
But uh, yeah, so it's not a busy job. And this is the main reason that, you know, there's other parts of the country and, and probably in Kansas, you have a helicopter and that's a, it's probably more than likely a, a company air methods or another company like that. That's they're a for-profit medical transfer company. You know, I work for a sheriff's office, so there ain't no profit in it for sure. And this is why, you know, it's not that busy here. So we don't have a lot of, uh, we don't have a lot of business, which keeps a lot of those for-profit companies out of there. But you know, Fort Lauderdale is unique terrain, right? Where you have, we have ocean. And then, you know, if from here, my house, if I go, you know, I'm about a, about a quarter, quarter mile from the uh, ocean. If I go due West about eight or nine miles, then it's, it's swamp. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's all North South. There's pretty much nothing East West of everything. So yeah, that's kind of how I ended up, ended up there with that. And it's a good job. I, I enjoy it. So it's, it's got its challenges though. So like everything, yeah. but if it doesn't, cha- it's not challenging. It's probably not worth doing. You know, if it's easy, it's, 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 it's probably not, probably something wrong. If it's too easy, there's probably something wrong. Especially for someone like yourself and like so many who are listening here that, uh, as we just said earlier, that, that expect to be challenged and expect to have yeah. to put in uh, honest day's work, honest yeah. day's pay. Along those lines, I mean, you talked about how once the bullets started flying that people in the military, and, and thinking back to 2001, we hadn't seen a lot of active combat. No, uh, not at all. Since Vietnam. I mean, no. you, know, you take out some Panama and some things there in the early 90s, of course, in, in Iraq. and Yeah. Uh, but today... Anybody, I would guess, signs up for any kind of military service knows that's a serious potential. And yet we hear in private industry and in civilian life that folks sign up for a job and then once they have to work hard, they fall out. Just kind of like what you talked about. What is happening from your perspective within the military i mean is it easier to retain folks today or is it yeah it's it's in work ethics and right now it's you know my my kids can speak better of this Uh, jake is jake is getting ready to get out of the military right now and he's got kind of a raw deal out of a lot of stuff the military's handling of covid was you know poor in my opinion there was a lot of mistakes in there and they they just shut everything down. And when they shut everything down, it, it hurt a lot of people and it hurt a lot of retention. And for Jake, what he's doing as a corpsman, you know, because they're, they're really hurting for people right now. They, they don't have the numbers that they used to have. So the reenlistment bonus was like nothing. Really, they didn't offer him anything. But yet, if he were to get out and then come back in, the bonus is like quadrupled. So it, it doesn't make any sense. And this is why you get a lot of, you know, kind of bean counters that don't really, uh, they don't have to put numbers to, you know, to reality. And a lot of it, unfortunately, in the military right now is a, is a lot of, they're not necessarily focused on the mission. They're focused on all these other, you know, things that are, that are distracting, uh, you know, uh, all the the gender, your what are your pronouns, all this other, you know. And, and I'm sorry if somebody doesn't believe in it, but you know, it just it it drives me insane. I don't quite understand it. You know, we got to kind of grow up a little bit and and be able to do our job. Uh, you know, and, and it's a lot of that is lost. Military's lost focus on a lot of the stuff. Now that's Jake's perspective. Uh, Joey, who's in the army, Joey's you know, 
he's kind of the same route with that, but his is, you know, that kid right now, you know, I, my deployments, I went to every crap hole on the, on the planet. He's in, uh, uh, he's in Qatar right now for four month deployment to provide security for the, uh, the world cup soccer tournament. So (laughs) through the army. (laughs) Yeah. So of course he thinks it's a great deal. Uh, so, uh, he's having a good time, but I think it's a lot of, you know, the, the military has lost focused on what's important in, in a grand scheme of things. And, you know, all the entities to lose focus. I mean, I've always felt like military, regardless of branch, regardless of time and history, if you had to say what, what's the one thing that the military teaches, maybe outside the chain of command, it's focus. And it is, you know, laser focus and that's right. amazing to me the irony that that is is in that statement yeah and you know and that's that's they still have a job to do and there's the different branches and different commanders uh handle things differently but you know you might end up with a commander now would i say don't join the military uh absolutely not for some people it's it's the absolute right thing if i were to go back on it again i, w- I would do the same thing i i wouldn't change a thing because I know I needed that structure and discipline to push me forward in life. Kind of give me that little kick in the butt to get going. Because uh, coming out of high school, I, I didn't have that, right? I'd end up at the JUCO, like drinking beer every day. And, you know, and not doing anything as far as education or furthering my, you know, being a productive member of society. So that's uh, that's what I needed. And I still, you know... People, I, I have a coworker that has a son that's thinking about the military, and I'm like, please, you know, have him call me, and and I do it all the time to guys. I'm like, going for it for the right reasons. Know what you're getting into, you know, and that's again, young and dumb as I was at at, at 17 years old when I raised my right hand, I understood that if the nation called on me to go into conflict, I had to go do that, and. You know, and that's a big part of it. But so do I recommend the military still? Yes, I do. And there is all kinds of things you can do in the military now. I mean, if you, yeah, you from carrying a rifle to, to carrying a computer, right? Cybersecurity is one of the biggest growing fields in the military right now because that is our next kind of battlefront uh, that we're heading into. So there's all kinds of things for people to do in there. And you do it for a couple of years. If you don't like it, then get out and do something else. If you like it, stay in, and then you'll have a decent, decent retirement. Go do something else for 20 years. So, which is kind of what I'm doing. You've done exactly what you said that you and Melinda figured out, and that is make the most of what you have and build on every single step and build from there. And it's, yeah. it's impressive. And you make most of what you got, right? Because not everything's going to be a perfect situation. You got you to gotta work with what you got. So no matter what. So I want to back up a little ways. You were talking about sorry, marriages and kind of being a, a pass fail. And, and yeah. you described, I think, appropriately that communication is the key. And yeah. making sure that you, whether it is typing while you're watching a slow, fuzzy picture on your computer screen <laughs> yeah. or, or yeah. talking about what you need to talk about when you do get face-to-face or get a connection. Um, not just in relationships and, and spouses, but 
What about, I mean, we hear the horror stories about soldiers who've come home and the, the PTSD and the horrors and the demons that they have to sort through. Uh, is communication, uh, is that what's lacking quite often here, that they don't have anybody to talk to or they won't or can't talk to anybody? I know obviously there's yeah. differences there, but what's your it, perspective on that? It, it is, and I'll start with this. You can't, and, and I kind of said something like this, you can't see what I've seen or done what I've done and have it not affect you in some way, shape or form. Right. And it's just impossible. And it affects people differently, some severely and some not so severely. A good friend of mine, beginning of December, you know, I'm going, he's getting buried in Arlington. He passed away about four months ago and he's getting interned in Arlington National Cemetery. And, uh, you know, Mike is, He's a good friend, but he, he really struggled. And unfortunately, the VA and our current medical systems, you know, they're, they're kind of learning a little bit because they don't, you know, it's medical systems that don't adapt to change very well, right? So for a long time, they would just, whatever drug he wanted, they would just give it to him. They would hand him, uh, okay, here's an antidepressant. Okay, here's, here's uh, some some you know, some stuff to focus, uh, here's some, some stuff to sleep. And then you go to another doctor, you know, and they'd give him something, this and that, and it, it, it all built on it. And none of was really looking after him. There was no one point of contact that was actually trying to take care of Mike other than his friends. And, you know, so Mike struggled with a lot of addiction and a good portion of that is, is, you know, it's kind of, what he had going on and and a lot of is the is the ptsd that he suffered from so and for me personally and it's what i've talked about already i surround myself with people that are kind of that like-minded that is my therapy and that's how i deal with situations that i i can you know i still have a lot of military contacts that i keep in touch with friends that i'll never you know there'll be friends until we until we die right but you know it is it is what it is, but it's important that, you know, we see it, you know, that communication again and, and how to deal with that. There is no perfect answer on how to deal with it for every individual, but you have to deal with it some way, shape or form. Uh, you can't hide it. And that's what, you know, you know, our grandfather and his generation and World War II generation, that's, that's all they did. They hid it, you know, and they end up with alcoholism and, and, you know, all kinds of other problems. So you, you can't hide stuff like that. You have to, you have to confront it and, and, and deal with it. So, and everybody's got their own certain ways. You know, as I watch television, as I watch, and I don't watch a lot of it, but there's a show on, and I think I mentioned it to you, SEAL Team. Um, yeah. And for all its imperfections, I know it's probably like me watching Yellowstone and chuckling about how many things they may not get perfect. You probably watch these military shows <laughs> and go, my gosh, you know, at least get the uniform people. Yeah, you don't, you, Dale Banks, you don't take anybody to the railroad, the railroad station no, on, a, on a bi-weekly basis. Yeah, we have, we have it this month. <laughs> <laughs> the train station the train away. station that's, that's what it is that's the term for it <laughs> hey we're yeah. gonna go to the train station <laughs> yeah. it's it's just too far i don't have time yeah. but you know you watch seal team and and for all its imperfections on the details the thing that i have gathered from a show like that is exactly what you're talking about how 
how we as a society, whether it be the medical system or the military or, or us just being ignorant and not seeing the signs, you know, trying to treat things with another drug, another drug, another drug, trying yeah. to ignore and override, as they say, you know, these are things that today, especially, we just can't do. And and I've never really, I've never really compared farming and ranching to the military, but you've mentioned it in terms of work ethic and, and long hours and yeah, and, and certainly like certainly the stressors are there too. Exactly. So, I mean, it's yeah. To me, it, ours is nothing like what you saw in, in you know combat deployments. But yeah, in terms of toughing it out, not talking to anybody, letting these stressors, financial, weather, market. You know, yeah, family, community—you name it. In in terms of just letting these things fester until you do something drastic, it's there. And yeah. um, I, I I go back to exactly what you said about you and Melinda holding things together because of communication. I I think it's the same with a lot of farm and ranch families. That, yeah, um, absolutely. The cowboy, the the soldier. We've all got this stigma. We've all got this tough yeah. guy image that we're not supposed to let our feelings show. We're not supposed to go there. And if we do, it's a sign of weakness when in actuality it's it's probably the strongest thing we can do. Yeah. And it is and everybody has stress in their lives. And and it's finding ways to deal with that and, and deal with it in a healthy manner, right? You know, I exercise a lot. That's one of the things I do to, to relieve stress. You know, if I don't, if I don't go get, if I don't work out every three or four days because, well, because I'm, one, I'm not working on a ranch, right? So I, I don't have a lot of that physical labor that, that I need to do all the time. But, you know, Melinda will say, hey, you're, you need to go it's for a run. Go yeah. Let's go do something somewhere hot else. Yoga, buddy. Hot yeah. Yoga. <laughs> yeah. You ever done hot yoga? That's no joke. <laughs> Let me tell I you. Know. I, you were telling me about it. I did yeah, yoga it for the first time when I was there in Florida and I was chuckling about it. And then yeah. you started telling me what you did. And I'm like, holy smokes. That, yeah. That guy's a machine. Yeah. I took Melinda and then Lucy there and, and both of them hate me now because of it. So <laughs> yeah, that is no joke. If, if anybody thinks you're weak because you do hot yoga, I guarantee you, you are not weak. So anyway, yeah. So, but the, the important thing with, with all of us, it, no matter what your career is, you deal with those stressors. You don't hide them, you know, cause that's, that makes it worse, you know, and sometimes we can't dump our stress on other people. I'm not saying that, but you, you still have to deal with it somehow. And those around have to be ready to listen. Yeah. And sometimes maybe that's all that we have to do. I think that's some of the tough thing with, you name it, stress, grief, whatever the case yeah. may be. Not only are we not good at voicing that stressor or that, that grief that we're holding in, those of us that are there and want to help, we're not good at listening. I mean, I'm a fixer. I hear somebody voice yeah. something that's that's a challenge. My, I mean, Amy constantly. She's like, I just want to talk about. It. I don't want you to fix it. Yeah, like I, I'm a I'm a parrier. I can't just that's not absolutely solve true. This. I know exactly you're, you're, how to solve you're, it. You're not the only one. You know, I'm like, okay, we have a problem. Let's here's the solution. So let's try this. We have course action A, and I go back to my military terms. Right, course action A, course action B, course action C. Okay, well pros and cons of each of those which one are we going to do and it's like i just want you to listen 
Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. I was trying to solve it. I'm so. just glad I'm not the only one. And I'm sure no, there's a for sure you're other, not the only one. Yeah. You're a lot of other guys <laughs> the same common. So but anyway. That is, it is tough. It's it's tough to just be that that open ear to yeah. let them vent and yeah. not necessarily try to fix it, but just show that you give a dang. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the biggest thing. We're coming up on Veterans Day here, and that's always been, especially me growing up in relative peacetime, born in 73, Nam was essentially over, and I didn't see anything again until the first Iraq War, yeah, uh, or first Gulf War. Um, Veterans Day for me was, a, was always old guys from maybe Korea, but probably World War II, that were putting on the fatigues that didn't quite fit anymore and and we're going through this formal march this formal thing that i didn't get today it means a lot more to me and i suppose it's because of a few more gray hairs i think it's probably because of a lot more combat missions that yeah guys my age have had to go on but it's still one of those things that especially in the in certain areas of the country um we're kind of isolated from. I don't know a lot of active military servicemen and women. Um, yeah. And and it, it's it's just hard for us to even relate. But tell us how best to honor those who have fallen, those who are still here, those who are dealing with stresses and PTSD that we don't even realize. What do we do best this Veterans Day and in the future to honor those who have served? Just, you know... It's not forgetting, right? This country has learned a lot since since Vietnam, right, and how how we treat veterans. And and just because somebody served in the military doesn't make they're not a hero. That's a cliche word now that gets tossed around a lot. But you know, I, I went in the military because I, I frankly I needed a job, and that seemed like the best job available to me. Did I stay there and and enjoy it and make the most of it? Yeah, but how you honor veterans is is just, it's just don't forget about them and it's this country we we do it i think well i i still you know i was in lowe's yesterday using my military discount and you know uh the cashier you know they always usually say say it but another lady sitting in line she's she she came up and 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 thanked me you know and and i appreciate that and that's those little things like that always help so I told you I worked for the Dutch for a number of years. Uh, and you and I have talked about Brady, Texas, right? You're familiar with right. Brady, right? Yep. So yep. I'm with uh, two Dutch guys in a cafe in Brady, Texas. In the Netherlands, you know, if you're in the military, you're not well-respected at all. They think you're in, in, in a lot of – Germany is like this too. Some of the other, they, you're, not, you're not looked down upon. I mean – but it's not like a desirable job that everybody wants. They don't get any respect. There's no such thing as a, as a, a military discount or a Veterans Day in the Netherlands. So these guys, and, and there were two infantry guys that were, that were brand new. This is their maybe first or second trip to the States. Uh, and they're sitting in this cafe in uniform in Brady, Texas. And nobody knows. These guys don't know who these people are, and the people don't know who they are, but they know they're in the military and so somebody bought our lunch and these guys 
it blew their mind. They could never, they couldn't even imagine something like that ever even happening in the Netherlands. So, and that that stuff, you know, and I, I don't need people to buy me lunch, but just that recognition every once in a while, you know, and it, it's important, and it's something I think we do well in this country right now. We didn't do well in the past, but I think we do well now. Uh, I certainly feel that way, and I think you know. You know, I think that's important because there's there's a lot of people that have sacrificed a lot for this country, uh, and there's some people that have, haven't really sacrificed that much, but they still deserve recognition for raising the right arm. So yeah, that's uh, it's just that recognition. Yeah, those Dutch guys they they still couldn't believe that. It's one of my favorite stories to tell when they they saw that. It's just it blew their mind. Well, I'm I'm glad that we do respect the military. I'm glad that that we do recognize you and and it doesn't feel like enough to just say thank you it doesn't feel like enough to tell you and and everybody who has served especially given the sacrifices that you have given and your families um, have given as well but but yeah i mean we can't thank you enough because defense of freedom and defense of people so that we can not even give a second thought to some of the yeah. horrors that are happening right now and every day yeah. in other parts of the world instead of here. And yeah. thanks to what you've done and those who have gone before you. And- well, I appreciate that greatly. I, I really do. And, the, and you know, that's it's, it's important. And, you know, that makes a lot of that worthwhile. I still tell people I was a dumb 18-year-old kid that needed a job, though. So. <laughs> Well, as, I, as I've said a couple times before, uh, anyone who would have believed you uh, after listening for the last hour or so, they're not buying it. So. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> There's always time. Anyway. Oh, no, no. Well, Kyle, thank you. Hey, I appreciate it, Matt. It's a good time. So, And I'm looking forward to next month, so I'll be down good, there for the good. sale. We can't wait to, to have you all here. You and Melinda, is anybody else? Just on? Melinda and I, I That's think. I figured so. the boys uh, are, are otherwise committed, you know, guarding soccer fields and things like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. Right? Yeah. It's not the same deployment I went on, for sure. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, seriously, thank you very much. All right. And, and we, will, uh, we will do exactly that this Veterans Day and, and every day after. All right. I appreciate it, Mac. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, Kyle. It's time to invest in practical, profitable genetics from Dale Banks Angus. We'll sell 145 yearling and coming two-year-old bulls on Saturday, November 19th. They're the top end of our 2021 calf crops, bred for over a century to offer a balance of calving ease, docility, maternal excellence, carcass merit, and sound feet and legs. They're ranch-raised, freeze-branded, fertility-checked, and ready to work either this fall or next spring. Catalogs will be available in late October. Contact us today to get on the list. Videos of all bulls will be available prior to the sale. Come see us November 19th northwest of Eureka, Kansas, or bid online at cci.live. Call or text Matt Perrier at 620-583-4305 or go to dalebanks.com. 